Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about topics which change from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss the career, impact and symbolic power of one of the most iconic and maligned movie stars of the past three decades, Kevin Costner. To help me pass the career of an actor who at various times has been a box office draw, a punchline and a metaphor for an entire country, I'm joined by a historian, self-professed Costner fan, and the man who is indirectly responsible for me knowing the names of the presidents of the United States in chronological order, it's Jack Roden. Hi, Jack. How are you doing? Hi, Edwin. I'm good. Good. Uh, to explain the last part of that part of the intro, back in 2012, when I was waiting to emigrate to the US, but basically had nowhere to live in the U- in the UK and had to wait around for a really long time because the Olympics were on and that meant that the US embassy were not processing immigration uh, things particularly quickly. Um, I stayed in your house in Sheffield, um, and in, in specifically in your room in the house that you were sharing with a bunch of our friends at the time. And you had a poster of the uh, you know of the presidents of the United States on the wall. Uh, and to kind of help myself get to sleep at night, I would just kind of look at them all and then try and recount them all. And so to this day, I can still recount all of the presidents of the United States in order. Though, to be honest, I don't quite like the latest addition to that list. <laughs> he's, certainly, he's going to make a change from uh, what was, well, one of the main visual things to remember about that poster was the first 60 or so years, they were all very regal portraits mm-hmm. of a very aristocratic, uh, I suppose, upper bourgeoisie gentleman. Mm-hmm. replaced then with the super serious photograph portrait up until George W. Bush, who I think was the first person to have a goofy grin. Yeah, and sounds about right. Then Obama was relatively serious, quite smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but God only knows how much Trump will uh, stand out, as he'll obviously break with some kind of tradition. Maybe a cartoon, not a photograph yeah, just- at all. <laughs> go for one of the many caricatures that political cartoonists have been perfecting of him over the last couple of years. He's Maybe a... it would just be a picture of Alec Baldwin. <laughs> he's, a, he's a gift to uh, caricaturists, but also a curse, because uh, like somebody I've studied in my own uh, history, um, he is almost beyond caricature, and that's mm-hmm. where his power lies. Yeah, he is undeniable, and that is the the problem. Yes. No matter how much you want to not give him mental headspace, he will he will always be there. That was one of my favourite tweets immediately after the election was, I think, from Keith Thipps, who was at one point the editor of the AV Club and then the Dissolve, said like the thing that he was most angry about was that he was so looking forward to not thinking about Donald Trump <laughs> ever again. That's, that's after, fair. Uh, and, and like, we've, we've not been given that luxury. <laughs> Uh, like a reality TV show you can't turn off. Mm. Yeah, or one that everyone insists that you have to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, he's 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 a he's a polit- political Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, except the the twists are never that exciting. It's just <laughs> oh, he can't enact his agenda because he's incompetent. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that was kind of a twist from the kind of the doom and gloom of his inauguration. But yeah, I think that the the idea that he's not able to just kind of function as a politician yeah. isn't that surprising. It's a bit too mundane. <laughs> yeah, it was just going, oh, this is going to be a very exciting period. Not really, it's just everything. I, I, the collapse of the healthcare bill was kind of exciting just because it was stunning. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah I've yeah. never seen a failure in American politics in my lifetime quite as good as that. It wasn't even, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a slow motion car crash. It was a mm. blink and you miss it car crash. It was, yeah, it we're w- going to pass this by Friday. We're not passing it by Friday. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That's and it was it. A, car, a car crash where the car was going along and then one of the drivers decided he was just going to drive right across into the other lane. <laughs> into oncoming traffic. <laughs> See, we're laughing. We're laughing. <laughs> we can laugh now. We can <laughs> laugh now that 24 million people aren't going to get kicked off their healthcare. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But yeah, not not probably not going to be in my top ten American <laughs> presidents based on the from that poster. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, largely because there's some real contenders in there. Increasing respect for Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, yeah. We we discussed my guilty uh, guilty pleasure of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yeah, um, you, you have to admire a man who was at least very very effective. Yes. Yeah. Which a lot a lot of presidents aren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is sometimes a good thing. <laughs> but also, I don't think he's going to have that in the future. He's not going to have the charm of your Martin Van Buren's and Millard Fillmore's. Mm-hmm. In that, unfortunately, people will probably remember him. Yes, yeah, but he will get added to the Simpsons president song <laughs> under the category of. What is it? It's like something regrettable, a forgettable, occasionally regrettable presidents of the USA. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> falls under one of those categories yeah. already. Barely yeah. 100 days in. Uh, anyway, this, this, is a, this is a film and television podcast. It certainly is. Well, he is, I guess, he, is, he is a television personality. But yeah, so this episode we're going to be talking about Kevin Costner. Um, the reason for this mainly being that we kind of discussed this on Facebook after the Buffy episode went up and you said that you would have been a guest and, and I would have invited you on if I'd known that you were a huge Buffy fan, which really should have been something we should have discussed at this point because it is like, <laughs> it is it is like literally one of those things, like if I know someone is a fan of Buffy, it's like, okay, yeah, they're, pretty, they're probably pretty sound. It's a good marker of quality in a person. It's, um, uh, yeah, uh, Buffy, like Kevin Costner, is um, something I have a completely non-ironic love of. Yes, and that, that was the other thing, is like one of the first conversations I remember having with you that didn't take place at Death by Shoes with deafening music going on <laughs> was was about Kevin Costner. We were with our friend Ben, and uh, he was kind of talking about Kevin Costner, I think, that in a kind of a jokey way, and I could tell that you, your appreciation of him was like completely unironic, as you say, and I think that uh, that is kind of unusual because... Kevin Costner has, because he's had a career full of peaks and troughs uh, and spikes of relevance, um, there are there is kind of a, a sense, I think, for a lot of people that he's kind of something of a joke and, and that people do make fun of him quite a lot. So uh, that kind of uh, earnest appreciation was something that really kind of stood out to me and, and why I wanted to talk to you about him. And why I'm happy to talk. Great. Uh, so what would be kind of like, what were the films of his that you were kind of you first saw or that kind of first made you aware of who Kevin Costner was? I grew up with well me and my sister absolutely loved Robin Hood Prince of Thieves Mm -hmm. as probably our favorite film up to about I'd say the age of 14 15 maybe right so we got a good that VHS got 
<laughs> about five years of heavy watching. Yeah. Also, uh, we had what at the time must have been quite an odd decision, but we had the VHS of Silverado. Right. Yes, which was kind of his one of his b- breakout movies. Yeah. Uh, where he wasn't really the star, he was kind of uh, he was the kid who gets into trouble for for kind of wooing one of the girlfriends of one of the baddies, mm-hmm. and he's the younger brother of one of the heroes in that film, who then, along with Danny Glover, go and sort everybody out. He also, I believe, at one point puts his hat on a horse. Yes, that's which was that's... one of the the moments from it that I remember for something. I think because. Um, I think his later works, he when he does become a lead, um, he doesn't have that quite that same kind of sense of goofiness to it. Like no. he is kind of a comic relief character, and he still is often funny, and he will have jokes, and he that he because of his kind of natural kind of charm and charisma, he's an entertaining figure. But that is for for kind of a breakout role, it's kind of atypical because the kind of things he would do almost immediately after that were kind of more serious what what would be considered kind of serious leading man roles well yeah he's what he's two years out from that to untouchables Mm -hmm. which is like the least goofy yeah (laughs) film ever very Um, very serious and then yeah you're right uh well we 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 had the vhs of bull durham Mm -hmm. uh, and watched that way too early yes um, considering its adult themes Yes, that is one that I think it also makes for an interesting contrast because I think he is, because he made three baseball films, he is kind of indelibly linked to baseball in a lot of people's minds. And I think that in that case, you know, it makes for a really interesting contrast because he made Bull Durham in 88, which is kind of a very earthy, grounded movie about basically the mechanics and the process of baseball. Like, this is what it's like to be a baseball player who's not really that successful. (laughs) And it's just kind of on a minor league team and it doesn't really do much. Uh, and then like you, the next year you have Field of Dreams, which is a movie about basically the, the Ken Burnsy idea of baseball as this kind of metaphor for American life, uh, which really does in both its story, because it's all this magical realist things to do with spirits. You know, there's a very spiritual movie, but it mm. does really seem to be a movie about baseball almost as a metaphysical construct. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a sport that I've had many debates with uh, people in Britain who don't get baseball at all. Mm. But it's a great sport to think about. Right. As opposed yeah. to necessarily to watch. Mm-hmm. Like in the classic with the Simpsons reference of uh, Homer when he tries to watch a baseball game sober. <laughs> he says, oh my God, I never realised how boring this game really was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's, a, there's an element of Field of Dreams is perfect because it's not really about watching baseball, playing baseball. It's about thinking about baseball. Mm. And baseball as a metaphor for all kinds of things. Memory, mm. history, America. Like, And there's a kind of, as as we'll probably talk about, it's also very much about, it's about thinking about masculinity and fair play. Yes, I think that also ties into its its reputation as one of those movies that a lot of men of a certain age will talk about being the first one they remember crying at with their dads. Um, when I say people of a certain age, I basically mean me. It's like my <laughs> age. Like, or, or, or like that sense that there are certain moves, things that it's okay to cry at. Yeah. Um, 
like Ron Swanson says, you know, it's the Grand Canyon <laughs> funeral. <laughs> Uh, uh, does Ron Swanson actually list Field of Dreams? I don't think he would. No, he doesn't. But like, it might. It, like, if that, I think if if pushed, he may be willing to add it to the pantheon. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it does that. You know, the ending with him seeing his dad again and yeah. and you know saying, "Do you want to play a game catch?" It is one of those moments that I, that I think really is is genuinely kind of touching, and uh, is one of the reasons why the movie seems to really have has kind of lingered in the popular consciousness in a, in a huge way yeah it's a, it a movie sorry you go yeah no sorry there's a there's a couple of things as well like the the end scene like overcomes so much about that movie but it was you know as you say it's magical realist it's mm-hmm. completely unbelievable and doesn't make a huge amount of sense yeah but it the like the core emotion and like just genuine earnestness of the whole earnestness of the whole thing, like carries the day in the end. Mm. And this isn't my comparison, but it also I rewatched it the other night. And in that film at the start, he turns off. Is it Jimmy Stewart in Harvey? Yeah, is uh, on the TV and his kids watching it, and it's an easy throwaway joke about he's worried at that point about hearing voices, mm-hmm. um, and so he says that's not funny. And so turns off Jimmy Stewart in Harvey. But as a film, its endurance has been compared to It's a Wonderful Life. Right, In the sense of it's about a kind of spiritualism, but a kind of secular spiritualism. And also it's very much about, in a very uh, obvious way, it's about there are things more important than money and... uh, there are things more important than modernity and money, in a sense, is what Field of Dreams like keeps talking about. Baseball is a constant, the family is constant, the homestead mm. farm is constant, and the idea of Doc Graham giving up the chance for a baseball career in order to be a small-town doctor mm-hmm. is all very, it's a wonderful life ethos. And I think so. there's a part of that that means it's going to endure. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm rereading um Five Came Back, the Mark Harris book about the the directors, the Hollywood directors who went off to war. And uh Frank Capra is a big part of that because he was kind of a big part of the American propaganda effort. And in that book he he points out that one of the things that's really interesting about Capra as a filmmaker Capra as a filmmaker is that he was like a Republican whose ideology was completely incoherent in the <laughs> traditional sense in that you couldn't really pin him down on the most of the economical social issues he just seemed to have this really strong belief in america yeah. as a thing like yeah. or as a concept and i think a lot of that comes through in something like field of dreams as well it really isn't like you couldn't really point to it as being a movie about social or cultural conservatism it really is just a movie about the a specific idea of America, and yeah. it's one I think that in the years since then maybe has been co-opted by the right. I think you could kind of paint it that way, but I think in it as how it was intended, it isn't kind of conservative with a big C. It is just more just kind of conservative in the sense that it's about reflecting on the past as someone who's father had passed away at a fairly young age and and thinking about where you are where he is in his life at that point versus like where his dad was and things like that well yeah and it it is absolutely not 
conservative with a big C because there's an entire rather awkward town hall scene in which his wife steps up and argues against a big C conservative who's trying to ban controversial books from the local school and ends up saying that she's, you know, she wins the debate and talks about uh, she's halted the spread of neo-fascism in America, <laughs> um, which in, you know, looking back on in 1989 is maybe she was a little too optimistic about that. But um, it's it's a strange one. Like it's, um, well, to go back to LBJ, it's one in which it's liberal, but also maybe millennials would regard it as being conservative. It's a strange mm. one. Like, um, it's complete reverence for the past, I suppose, is a conservative trait. But there's nothing politically conservative about it. Mm. Well, I think maybe millennials who, you know, the, the kind of vinyl reviving millennials would uh, yeah. be, drawn, be drawn to the idea of venerating the past. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that maybe it's a movie that has... It's it's kind of persevered one because I think there's like a whole generation of people who grew up watching it with their with their dads who then are now old and they have kids of their own so they're going to show it to their kids. Mm-hmm. But I do feel as if that earnestness is something that will allow it to find new audiences whenever earnestness or sincerity, you know, the David Foster Wallace new sincerity idea kind of becomes fashionable again. Because I do feel like to to talk about uh, millennials, you know, there is that idea that they are all about. Uh, you know, it's kind of a broad thing, but that they are rejecting the cynicism and the the knee jerk irony of Gen X, and yeah. I think a film like I like Field of Dreams, which is completely unashamed to be about what it's about, is a movie that could probably kind of find purchase. I would certainly hope so. Yeah, I've I've always I've always found, in a sense, that there is a consistent theme that um, keeps bringing me back to Kevin Costner films is that they are very earnest, clear, good, honest storytelling. Mm. Like it's always it's always about storytelling. Um with no particular ulterior <laughs> whatever's on the screen is what was what they were trying to convey effectively. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how that is something that has been reasonably consistent throughout his career as an actor and it, it almost seems as if because because he became such a huge star at a relatively early point in his career, he has been able to kind of shape the kind of roles he took for a long time. Yeah. And so he's all he's kind of as much an auteur of a lot of those films as um as like their directors are, in the sense that he is someone whose body of work you can look at as, like you say, a celebration of kind of an earnestness of a kind of America, of just this kind of I guess ah shucks kind of like <laughs> small time just kind of a belief in fairness and goodness and things like that and even in the darker movies like like jfk would be another one that is the main thing driving his performances as jim garrison is he is a guy who's just trying to get to the truth and when he has his big speech at the end of the of the film he's just talking about the idea of of democracy and of rightness and the idea that you have to the truth has to come out in order to for you know america to really exist as what is it in- intended to be and what it should be and like regardless of whether or not you buy into the kennedy conspiracy stuff like that is a very forceful argument that feels as much an outgrowth of costner's persona as it yeah. does oliver stone no absolutely and there's a there's a thing that um i realized about thinking 
thinking about this uh, this podcast is well, for starters, the end speech in JFK is a classic make Jack cry watching a film moment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like the end of Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it obviously in retrospect teed me up to absolutely love for West Wing. Yes, which is also completely earnest and mm. unashamed of its you know its fundamental core belief that in the end America will will come right. Mm. And so I'd place it more in that kind of I'd place maybe his approach and attitude more in that West Wing. Um, kind of a naive earnestness of the sixties, maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's also interesting because I rewatched JFK the other night for the first time in years, and I did find it very funny that it ends with a Sorkin esque speech, yeah, and it begins with narration from Martin Sheen, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a weird confluence of events that would kind of take root a few years later. I suppose um, Martin Sheen's, in a, I suppose, a little bit like Kevin Costner in that sense, in that mm. he chooses roles that fits that fit his actual real life attitude and persona yeah and i think if you look at because because kevin costner's career um in recent years kind of took a a little bit of a tumble (laughs) and i say in recent years i mean since the late 90s um (laughs) but like over the last four or five years or so he has he has kind of taken on this really interesting stage of his career where in in between kind of these low budget action movies that he stars in because every older actor has to be in action movies these days um like criminal or two days to kill or three days to kill whichever one it is he he also does stuff like black and white which is kind of a very earnest drama about race in america that wasn't particularly well received but is certainly kind of uh, is is well intended and then hidden figures last year which was a huge hit in fact one of the biggest films of his career uh, and you kind of get the sense that he is cure. He is trying through his choices and the films he wants to be involved with and the film he wants to champion, to in some way make America better or to try and advance an argument about you know the the the, the problems facing America, which is um, kind of a very big and lofty thing to do, but it, it's also kind of really admirable. Yeah, I feel like he. He seems to be. He seems to be trying to introduce what, I suppose, what we'd, we we would call kind of liberal attitudes and ideas, but introduce them through very um, traditional storytelling mediums, mm. and through himself as a as a person who is a, a this you know this iconic um, Midwest white male figure mm. is an, is obviously an easier way. He thinks to introduce these stories than um, maybe other more preachy methods, should we say? Yeah, it's very interesting how so much of his career he does seem to play white authority figures or, or male authority figures who become aware of problems in America. Yeah, <laughs> and for, because he's the one who learns about it, the audience learns about it. I think yeah. you can see that in like playing Jim Garrison in JFK, the fact that he pretty much starts to him saying i'm ashamed to be an american today yeah. which is of something that has a lot of weight coming from someone like kevin costner who even at that point kind of had the aura the aura of of seeming to represent a certain idea of, of like you say midwestern america or the kind of the heart literal and, and kind of geo- uh, the figurative and geographical heart of america um 
or that you know in um in, in hidden figures where he is cast as a he's this composite character or this, <laughs> this fictional creation who's there basically to realize that sexism and racism are real and to kind of help and to to kind of help battle against it which yeah. you know it is is kind of troubling in, in certain regards and that it kind of feels a little pat for that story but you can see why he would want to take on those sorts of roles because he does present a certain image of american kind of authority and you know there's that sense of like if he can learn these things yeah, are wrong yeah. or that he can change them then maybe you can as well, well everybody can everybody yeah. can change <laughs> to go yeah, evan drago yeah. <laughs> um, um, well, I mean, the, the, another obvious one from his back catalogue for that is, apart from the Untouchables, but you also have he played Wyatt Earp. Mm. And even, I would go so far, though there's plenty of interesting things to say about Robin Hood, but also Robin Hood. Mm. In the character he plays starts off as kind of a rather narrow, like selfish, aristocratic Robin Hood. He yeah. then learns that there are people in society who aren't doing as well as him and so joins the fight to change society Mm -hmm. and the hilarious thing that people complain about Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is he's got an American accent Mm. but they're missing the entire point that Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is about you know it's about America as much as it's about Britain like it's an American Hollywood film Mm. yeah and I guess it kind of makes sense in the idea like you are uh, presenting that class divide in kind of a, a way, which is basically like the good guys all have American accents and the yeah. bad guys all have British accents, but it's like the the good characters, the kind of characters who are down on their luck and poor, all talk with their American accent to kind of reinforce their idea that they are not part of this kind of elite that are going yeah. to trying to destroy them. Yeah, um, and that very much fits his. I think that fits his his personality very well. Yeah, like he's the he's a. I think he sees himself as a kind of underdog but savior kind of character. Yeah, which is is interesting. That, that I think it points to this interesting dichotomy in his his persona and his career to kind of separate the two. Which is persona is he's this very kind of humble guy mm. who's just like thrown into crazy circumstances and just trying to get by. He's very relatable. But then, like in his career, like if you look at his work as a director, he does all of these kind of big epics like in in the kind of the classical sense you look at dances with wolves which is kind of a huge movie that aims for kind of a a grandeur of a david lean which is you know a big thing to go for if it's the first movie you've ever directed and he he more or less kind of sticks the landing on it um or even the postman which is kind of a big epic story there's that kind of sense like you say kind of views himself as some sort of kind of like savior someone who can kind of help america maybe help the world in some way you know there is a, a level of kind of self-belief yeah. and confidence that is that you have to have in that which is, is interesting but that's contrasted against his like i say kind of like ah oh, shucks you know i'm just yeah. gonna i'm just an actor just trying to do movies kind of persona but i'm yeah i'm just a i'm just a i'm just a regular guy but a regular guy who can teach america and unify <laughs> and, and bring us all forward together. All these things that no one else has managed to do, my films can can do. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's inter- it, it it is fascinating in that sense. But at the same time, I don't feel like I mean, how much can anyone know? But he, he's had enough choice in his career that if he genuinely wanted to make a different kind of movie, he would have made mm. it by now. 
Yeah. So it's, and I, I did read that one of his, well, his favorite movies um, growing up and still are epics like Florence of Arabia and Ben-Hur. Mm. Um, so I think he, he, he's obviously someone who's in love with grandiose storytelling with a, with a strong male lead at the heart. Yeah. Um, Preferably that lead being him. Preferably that. Yeah. Yeah, not Robert Duval in Open Range, him. <laughs> but yeah, I think it also it's yeah, interesting that he he does is drawn to those older kind of storytelling again. And Open Range is an interesting uh, example in that at that point in his career he had kind of he was kind of on the outs. Like he'd had um, for the love of the game had been kind of a big hit. Thirteen Days had done pretty well, but he wasn't the star he was when he was able to get um, when he was able to get the Postman made. No, and. It's interesting that he still managed to leverage someone to invest in reviving a genre which everyone is constantly telling us is dead. Yes, uh, despite it constantly being brilliant. Yeah, constantly <laughs> being brought back and revived and played in different ways. Um, yeah, the Western is, is as dead as, uh, I don't know, like comedy is dead. You know? it's <laughs> like, it, may have, it may have fallow years where there aren't that many good movie comedies, but they're still being made. But I, I, I guess Open Range fits in perfectly as well with his, um, again, his, his, his obsession with a particular vision of America. Mm. One that is very uh, rural, mm-hmm. um, very much, uh, he's, you know, he's very much a frontier kind of American. I, mean, yeah. I know he's from California. Most of his films are set in the Midwest mm-hmm. or even further west. Um, I don't know what's that, Rockies? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, and so he's obviously he is wedded to small town Midwest America and like kind of morality plays that take place within them. Mm. And Open Range is kind of a, a perfect example of that. There are scenes in Open Range that you know are interchangeable with Field of Dreams at times with the white picket fence mm-hmm. and the the kind of the, the the house where his his wife in Field of Dreams, but his future wife in Open Range stands out as kind of essentially a slice of heaven yeah. in, in what is a, a very complex and troubling world. And that's kind of, that's an image he returns to frequently. Yeah. And it's, it's also uh, in that kind of bucolic quality also is, it's interesting when he contrasts that against kind of violence because Dances with Wolves has quite a lot of violence in mm. it. I mean, it starts with him nearly getting his leg amputated. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people remember. Yeah, they don't make it through the rest of the film. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough way to start a movie. (laughs) But then, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of gunfights and things in in open range because it is kind of a a very kind of old fashioned western, but obviously made in two thousand and three, so you can have a bit more blood and guts. Yeah. Um, But I I do think his uh, obsession with that kind of very quiet, unassuming Midwestern American life, um, when it's in, in much the same way that his persona when it's used by filmmakers to um represent something about america or to kind of be played off against something darker like his the way he contrasts safety and home against kind of bloody violence is really effective because you come to associate his movies with a certain comfort yeah yeah so when he's and he has actually a couple of times he has played around with that a little bit um Mm -hmm. you have a perfect world yeah, with the Clint, Eastwood movie. Clint Eastwood, where he plays certainly he's kind of a, a criminal who comes good in the end, mm-hmm. but he's also a you know he's a child kidnapper, 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's not forget. And so that's quite a that's quite an interesting playing around with his his persona. And the the more recent film, oh, what's it called, Mister Brooks? Mister Brooks. Yeah. So he's not against trying for the darker side. I'm not entirely sure those are his most successful films. So. No, I mean, I I really like Mister Brooks precisely for that reason because there is. Like I think there's two kind of of his recent castings where you look at it, you think that's about as perfect a choice for this particular role as you could make, which is like uh, with you and Mr. Brooks, where he is like an upstanding family man who is a serial killer on the side and is kind of this uh, has this kind of dual persona. Um, and it's like, yeah, obviously, like Clint Eastwood, uh, 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 Kevin Costner, sure, it's him or Tom Hanks, you know, who would yeah. be the best person to embody. But he he's in certain sense better because that he has a kind of a more of a patrician air to him. Yeah. Like I think um, Tom Hanks is ever so slightly too cuddly, slightly whereas, gawky, isn't he, Tom Hanks? Yeah. So I think like Kevin Costner makes more sense because he does give that sense of the kind of the really upstanding member of society who's maybe a little kind of cold and distance with people, but generally kind of a good sort. Yeah, obviously he's a good choice to play a serial killer or in, um, in uh, man of steel where mm. like he's cast as Jonathan Kent, Superman's earth father. And even though that movie doesn't make particularly good use of Jonathan Kent and it kind of bungles the entire idea behind the way he raises Superman and kills him off in the dumbest way imaginable. Yeah, let's not get into the problems of uh, that film. But like when that was announced, it really was like I said, that may be the most perfect piece of casting <laughs> in any movie I can think of because there is literally no one I could think of who would be a better choice to represent <laughs> the kind of Midwestern farmer who raises Superman to kind of have these kind of yeah. small town American values than yeah. Kevin Costner. No, I could I could not agree more. Um, there's um, there's an interesting uh, thing I read about how he um, it was either I think he was offered the role of the president in Air Force One mm-hmm. um, before Harrison Ford did it, and I think he couldn't do it because of the Postman, believe it or not. Yeah, which is unfortunate. But um, mm. there's also yeah, there's something in that that he could have easily played that role as well. Yeah, um, as he, an earthy president, shall we say? Oh yeah, you could totally imagine him being a kind of a character. Like if if he had wanted to, like I could easily have seen him playing uh, to go back to the West Wing, playing Bartlett in yeah. the West Wing. Like if if he had wanted to go that route, if he still hadn't kind of thought, oh, I'm going to stay in movies, um, or or being the Michael Douglas role in the American President, you could totally yeah. see him easily kind of slipping into that role because he does have that kind of bearing of someone who is like a politician. Like if he ran for office, like the, you just see his face on a poster and say, obviously, yeah, obviously, <laughs> that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what our president He's obviously looks like. the governor of Iowa. Who, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Republican slash Democratic governor of Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't really matter which he would still, no, you're killing me now because I, I like American president, the film, mm-hmm. but my major problem with it is Michael Douglas. A little too sleazy for yeah. that role, isn't he? I think Costner would have actually been a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is it, there is one of those things. It's like um, when uh, they did the the American remake of remake of State of Play, the uh, BBC series where they cast like uh, Ben Affleck and Russell Crowe, and I think there was just something about it where you think uh, one <laughs> that I don't believe that these two went to school together, <laughs> like. <laughs> 
there's, there's just something about them that, that doesn't feel right. But like, it felt like because because they cast Ben Affleck as the politician and they cast Russell Crowe as like the reporter who's investigating things. Yeah. And something about me just kind of thought, I think like it would work better if these two were reversed because I do just feel like Russell Crowe has more at that point at least like like ten years ago, Russell Crowe had more of an air of authority to him. He would be yeah. more convincing as a kind of a, a troubled politician than Ben Affleck who just has as always has that kind of slight plasticity to him where he doesn't feel like a real person yeah yeah like it's you're, you're watching an animated doll <laughs> a crash test dummy that's wandered on screen but not an unconvincing one no it's just that sometimes he just doesn't come off like he's too he's too much of a movie star <laughs> to be convincing as a character <laughs> which actually brings us on to i think an interesting thing about kevin costner because i i feel like um because his career took this kind of real dip just as like internet movie culture really kind of mm. kicked off. He's not really discussed in, in the way that as, as a movie star in the way that his contemporaries are, because his contemporaries would be people like Tom Hanks, who we already mentioned yeah. Tom Cruise, uh, also Julia Roberts, these people who had, who were of the last batch of kind of movie stars in the traditional sense of people who could just be slotted into pretty much any movie and people would go and see them, yeah. which you don't really have these days there are more kind of actors who are famous but they only really make money when they're in certain kinds of movies yeah all the ones who you can slot them into any movie and they'll make money are the same ones as we're doing it 30 years ago mm-hmm. yeah so tom cruise or someone like that yeah or tom hanks yeah exactly yeah. i think that it he is to me kevin costner is not just a movie star in the sense that he has a really strong persona that persists like pretty much through every movie even and which can be played with which is also true of tom hanks and, and tom cruise because like if you look at tom cruise in magnolia or something he's still tom cruise like the whole point is he's just this like uh forceful magnetic person yeah. but he's also but he's now an absolute creep <laughs> and yep. just um more, or, or, more true to life than he's ever been <laughs> or tom hanks in like road to perdition where it's like oh he's now like a trained killer but he's also still like cuddly <laughs> tom hanks yeah like i think that with kevin costner you have someone who is is closer to like a john wayne or clint eastwood where you look at him and he goes beyond like movie star to being almost mythic. Like he is yeah. someone who you look at and, and like him being cast as Jonathan Kent. It's not just because he's a good actor and he can play that sort of role and he's the right age, but it's like he, if you want to kind of have a semiotic quality of saying what does, what represents kind of a certain kind of American masculinity. Yeah. It's Kevin Costner. It's Kevin Costner. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I, I, I've, I've, I completely agree, particularly with the, the John Wayne comparison, but even the Clint Eastwood one mm-hmm. is quite interesting because on screen he's always playing Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And Clint Eastwood's kind of like hard-boiled in a way that Kevin Costner is, I suppose, soft-boiled, if you will. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's, he's very like, runny. He's a lot more, he's a lot more um, homely than Clint Eastwood. Yeah. But they both achieve similar things sometimes in films. Yeah, I think he is in a he's kind of a slightly more sensitive Clint Eastwood or a slightly yeah. more sensitive uh John Wayne. Like he is they are they are all kind of like reticent men. They're not very uh demonstrative in their emotions. They keep no. it all kind of closed up. Again, which is like one of the reasons why 
Field of Dreams works really, really well is that he's a guy who keeps his kind of emotions close to his chest and then, like, just his voice breaks just as he's <laughs> yeah. saying his final line in the movie. And it's just like, yeah, it's like um, there's a joke. There's a joke about people from the Midwest, <laughs> which is like a guy from Iowa loved his wife so much he almost told her. Um, <laughs> like, that is that is kind of the, the, the kind of thing he embodies. But, like... Um, he there is there is more of a kind of a sensitivity you see it in bull durham where he's like mm. this guy who's kind of tough on the exterior but you know he does have genuine feelings for for susan sarandon and he can he can be gentle um, oh and he's you know he reads poetry yes yeah enjoys uh i think it's motown music in that film yes yeah that's a big um, part of it and yeah i mean i suppose that's the thing he's a he, he's very self-consciously he's a he's a baby boomer update of Clint Eastwood and John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he, he's he's still that kind of core American masculinity, but with all the all the kind of classic lessons you were supposed to learn in the sixties about race, about gender. He kind of takes all those on board in a way that maybe Clint Eastwood and John Wayne never <laughs> never consciously did too much of their characters. Yeah, maybe not learning enough to reject the toxic elements of masculinity or to like become a more fully realized person but getting about as far as that generation managed to get yeah i think that's fair he's still he is clearly uh on the the kind of the side of the angels a little bit but he still can't quite get to the point where he's like really openly demonstrative about his feelings (laughs) oh god no (laughs) um there's of course one thing we haven't mentioned that uh, I thought it was amusing to bring up, which is not only that he is, of course, an incredibly handsome man, mm-hmm. um, which of course helps with his enduring film career, but his uh, incredible popularity in Germany, apparently. I didn't know about this. Um, apparently he was uh, voted um, sexiest man in the world several times, but only in Germany. <laughs> right okay um, but i also think there's something in that again there's something in the the midwest uh heartland america appeal of kevin costner going mm. over to someone like david hasselhoff as well yeah there's something incredibly you know incredibly germanic about kevin costner yeah it's that um that the the definition of kind of like corn fed yeah you know that kind of the idea of being kind of like a strapping farmhand which is real <laughs> kind of like one of the most kind of American stereotype kind of things. He like, particularly in his younger days, like the late eighties, early nineties, that is what he really kind of evokes in a really powerful way. I could picture him in several films, actually in Barnes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if they weren't there, it just seems yeah. like he should, he would have been in a barn at some point. It seems like the JFK courtroom speech took place in a barn. <laughs> Yeah, or the, the remember the 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 Odessa steps sequence at the end of the Untouchables where they're <laughs> they're fighting in that barn. It was the steps of a small town American courthouse. <laughs> also, the the Untouchable and things like the Untouchables, I think, is a really interesting movie in his career. In that, I think it does get to that idea again of him being someone who is being drawn into the realizations of how dark the world can be. Mm. Obviously he's a lawman, he's seen terrible things, but him being drawn into taking on Al Capone, he just kind of encounters someone who's like far, far worse than anything he's imagined. Yeah. And I do like the idea, again, it comes to that idea of him being a 
a representative of American masculinity or American strength being awakened to the injustices of the world, mm-hmm. which I think is a big part of the, again, of the boomer thing, which is like, if you're talking about people who grew up in the sixties and who were fighting for social change, like he embodies that in a really subtle way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of, um, somebody who his characters grow, as you say, they never go the whole way maybe mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the, what we, what we suppose we would call a millennial or modern mm-hmm. ideal, but he's on the right path in all his films. But he also never falls into despair, which is kind of the the other, the two paths you can follow, is you either become committed to fighting all of the injustices or you just fall into complete nihilism and don't believe you can change anything. Like, even at the end of JFK, when he loses the court case, there is mm. still that sense. He he's kind of still has that stoicism and that resolve, the sense that, you know, the truth's going to come out one day, you know, we'll keep fighting this thing, even though he doesn't really have a chance. And I think that kind of uh, inner strength that he really kind of projects in a lot of his movies is, yeah. is one of the, the, the things that stands out. No, I completely agree. And hence why... Um... He is probably somebody that's worth rediscovering, certainly. Mm. Like, yeah. But, but I mean, I, in particular, I'd say that that ten-year period from Silverado to Waterworld, mm-hmm. where effectively he produced a film a year or was in a film a year. Yeah. And they're almost all gold in that way of not necessarily being fantastic films, but in having that iconic Costner in them mm-hmm. you can you know pick any of those films virtually and you get some pure costner which is a great antidote to you know slightly more cynical um nihilistic films that we've had in the last 15 years mm. yeah but uh, and also it's kind of a clear-eyed kind of uh positivity mm. just like things are bad but you know if you really kind of work hard maybe you can make the world a little better and yeah. it's it's interesting to think that that is um, can be seen as kind of a core tenant of a massive Hollywood star's career. <laughs> that if you kind of watch them all in that sense, you kind of get a a particular vision of a way of existing in the world. Yeah, yeah. There's one other thing I thought about when you mentioned the way he's been remembered differently mm-hmm. to, say, the way that Tom Hanks went on or Tom Cruise went on mm-hmm. um, to be a major star and... Kevin Costner, in a sense, didn't. Mm. And that's the idea that his attempt at... He never really attempted to do a blockbuster again after The Postman. Yeah. And films that have been massively successful in the last 15 years tend to have been blockbusters. Mm. And he never really went into television, which has been a big thing for you know serious actors to go into yeah he um, did the hatfield and mccoy's miniseries and was apparently very good yeah yeah I, I heard lots of really good things and people said that he was really good in it again it also feels like he went into something that was totally within his wheelhouse which is historical western, yeah, western. kind of takes place over many generations uh you know kind of has an epic sweep to it it's like yeah that is the ultimate costner kind of tv project but also he he always um, talked about films he wanted to make or got involved in tended to be in the 15 million to, say, 100 million bracket, mm. which is, and I'm not an expert, you're an expert, but this is what 
Commode always talks about as being the kinds of films that are, have been very difficult to make in the last 15 years. Yeah, that is kind of an ongoing crisis that is the reason why you see people like David Lynch, who used to be very prolific, or John Waters, who used to make like a movie every couple of years, people who really seem to love that mid-budget range, just kind of stepped away from the movie industry because they couldn't they couldn't get those sort of movies made unless they were willing to kind of work incredibly hard to kind of cobble together funding from like eight different production companies and kind of hustle in a way that they hadn't done before or they would be forced to kind of like just make stuff on super duper low budgets that they weren't really interested in um and and it does feel as if in much the same way that the rom-com which again is something that existed in that in that range uh, and also has died in the last couple of decades um the, the the movies that kevin costner made and always seemed interested in in making um aren't really made as much anymore yeah uh, i think yeah because black black and white as an example he actually ended up having to i think he funded about half of that film mm. to actually get it made yeah. and he's i mean he wasn't the director he was just lead actor in it so it's it's interesting maybe yeah maybe part of his is simply that yeah times changed and the kinds of films that would give him the opportunities were giving him amazing opportunities from the mid 80s to the mid 90s stopped being made Mm. Uh, but he also missed out on that kind of crest of the late 90s early 2000s where like like tom cruise and tom hanks again to go back to them they really capitalized on where they were in a bunch of movies like something like Castaway, which was mm. like a huge hit. It was a Saving mid- Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan or um like Tom Cruise with Vanilla, Vanilla Sky or something, where there seemed to be this this period where Hollywood hadn't quite figured out what the next kind of moneymaker was. So they just kind of threw out a lot of money at a lot of different things and you got a lot of interesting movies that got made on kind of the sort of budgets that kevin costner really liked yeah um, but by that point because he had he had had such a huge flop with the postman he wasn't really being talked about for those sort of roles mm-hmm. so like maybe if the postman hadn't happened or if the postman had been a hit like he would have been in the frame for something like that maybe he would have been casting something like american beauty which would have been yeah like a hugely successful movie that got him a lot more work at a time when there seemed to be a lot of interest in those kind of movies. And then he could have transitioned into doing something like more sustainable once those sort of movies just disappeared. Yeah, American Beauty is an interesting one because um, in the spirit of uh, things I think he would have been better in than <laughs> the person who was ultimately cast mm-hmm. um, would be uh, Kevin Spacey in uh, the recent TV adaptation of House of Cards. I could see that, yeah. Um, I think he would actually be in a way better because there isn't an inherent like the thing that's different from the British to the American version is Francis Urquhart in the British version seemed to have a kind of ideological certainty mm-hmm. and earnestness about what he was trying to achieve which Kevin Spacey completely doesn't have whereas Kevin Costner could have brought that classic as we've been talking about the whole episode he could have brought a bit of a whole baggage of a, a certainty to it. Yeah, and also in the original, there is a greater sense of duality between 
what um, Urquhart says to the audience in his soliloquies and what he, how he acts to the yeah. people in his life. And there isn't that with Spacey's performance. Like, no. Spacey's performance has one tone <laughs> that he has, regardless of whether he's talking to the people in the scene or to the audience at home. And I feel like you could... Well, also, his southern accent, Costner's southern accent would have been more probably more convincing yeah um but but you you could get the sense that if he wanted to to project to uh to the to the people in the screen in the scene with him you know the real character the characters a more kind of human interaction or that sense that he's kind of putting on a mask and then you turn to the audience you know he could have differentiated more whereas like um spacey just kind of luxuriates in that kind of sleaziness throughout regardless of who he's talking to yeah yeah, we, we, yeah. I guess like with uh, like with Michael Douglas, there's uh, there's an innate there's an innate suspicion to Kevin Spacey. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that, it's uh, like um, Jack Nicholson. Like uh, Stephen King's complaint about Jack Nicholson in The Shining, where like as soon as he shows up on screen, you know he's going to go mad, and so you lose all <laughs> sense of suspense. Like there there is something inherent in Jack Nicholson that was always kind of like wild and untamed, and like even in movies where he isn't kind of under pressure or going mad there you just get that sense of his intensity yeah like michael Doug- michael douglas and, and kevin spacey they always just kind of give off that era of uneasy yeah it's like i shouldn't trust you like <laughs> regardless of whether you're the hero or not i really shouldn't trust you <laughs> but you can trust kevin costner he's a he's, that's his that's his calling card mm-hmm. and he always can win people over with a speech in his films and sh- you know, reassuring people about how trustworthy and right he is. Which would obviously make it more powerful when it turned out that, oh no, he was like a scheming bastard all along. Yeah, yeah. And he could appeal to things like, you know, mid-America and heartland values, Mm -hmm. whilst at the same time not caring about them at all. (laughs) Yeah. uh, He would have been perfect. You've made me mad now, because I've never been a huge fan of House of Cards in particular. Like, it's it's kind of feels like diet prestige television. Like, There's a lot of like there's stuff like you know the wire or deadwood or whatever like these shows that are kind of weighty and serious and, and like hugely enjoyable that one always feels like yeah i mean if you can't get them this will do in a pinch it's but like <laughs> i feel like yeah putting kevin coster and then you've got a much more interesting dynamic yeah yeah well I, I'm, I'm glad to i'm glad to hear we agree on that <laughs> glad that you've made me angry <laughs> one thing that did occur to me thinking about my the, the premise of me talking about Kevin Costner and that 10 year period in which I fell in love with his films. Mm. But it also makes me think about Eddie Murphy as well. Yeah. As an actor who was by, I mean, I might have my date slightly mixed up by, but by 1995 was on top of the world. Yeah. That's certainly all just disappeared just before this period we're talking about just before the internet age. Yeah, yeah, that, that was certainly. I think um, in his, in terms of the commercial success of his work, because he was still like opening movies to huge numbers, mm. and in also the general perception of him as someone who is good in movies and makes good movies, mm. he was definitely that was definitely the peak because you weren't getting into that period where after he was caught with a prostitute, he's yep. just made kids movies that were all. <laughs> like really terrible like he was still someone who had like a real edge to him like suddenly he re- he recedes into this really kind of 
comfort this kind of really comfortable mode of of uh oh the cut this comfortable kind of kind of movie that he made uh and he became like way less interesting yeah 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 and and very much suffered as a kind of instead of um i suppose instead of what what he had been, which was a you know a huge bankable movie star, where you go to an Eddie Murphy film and you know you're going to be faced with a particular character. Mm. He went to being a kind of joke. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, it just made, it makes me think about you know that happening in a particular window before say 2000, kind of can completely change a trajectory of a career. Yeah, when there's kind of personal forces in terms of bad decisions made in Eddie Murphy's case, the prostitute, in the case of uh, Kevin Costner, the, um, I guess, like choosing to kind of invest so much of his capital in The Postman and it turning out to be kind of a misguided project, which is not necessarily his fault so much as the, uh, him just kind of misjudging what people wanted. Um, like partly is that, but then part of it's just these kind of rolling kind of forces of the industry happening yeah. under the surface that they had like no knowledge or control of uh, and just kind of like combining in such a case that they ended up becoming these figures who were kind of jettisoned by culture yeah. to an extent that's what's, it's what's fascinating i mean in a sense we're both historians it's fascinating to see that juncture of you know of the personal like the personal decision um, with say medium term or long durée changes, mm. and how they can have massive effects—just accumulation of factors—it's fascinating. To me. Yeah, it's, it kind of ties into that idea, like that um, success. This is kind of like getting into Malcolm Gladwelly territory, I guess. But like that idea that success is partly due to forces you have no control over, it's due to like literally being born at the right time, like yeah. in the right time to take advantage of a certain or, or being in having to be at the right place at the right time but then the other part of it is like just being prepared to take advantage of it and yeah. i guess in the case of murphy and costner it's the exact opposite of that <laughs> it's of of things turning against you um kind of in the industry and being unprepared to kind of deal with that in a way that allows you to kind of really hold on yeah because there's a lot of other kind of movie stars who um, from that era, like someone like a Miss Marissa Tomei, for example, mm. who was kind of a big, a reasonably kind of big star in the nineties, um, and like has been able to persist, even though she's no longer the kind of the big name draw she is. She has managed to eke out a very kind of respectable career as kind of a character actress during that time, mm. and like she is someone who was able to make that shift in a way that a lot of other people like, like in the way that like Kevin Costner didn't like, he didn't shift to being a character actor. He still wanted to be a lead in movies, but yeah. the kind of movies that he was a lead in <laughs> had just kind of dried up, uh, which is why it's interesting now that like the biggest success he's had in recent years is in man of steel and hidden figures where he is kind of an important part of the movie, but he is very much kind of this supporting player. Yeah. And I mean, let's not let's not get into the the pity. Uh, let's not pity Kevin Costner. He seems to be perfectly fine. happy with his yeah his choices and his life. Um, yeah, I think he probably like he probably could have would have hoped that the postman had made more money, but like he <laughs> he doesn't seem to be bitter about the whole experience. From what I've seen, he's just happy to you know be able to make a living making movies, yeah. which is not something everyone gets to do. 
No, no. He's, he's a, a, an appreciation of how lucky he is. Mm. Which, um, again, ties into the idea that he's this kind of, like, humble, down-to-earth <laughs> guy. It's like, he, he's, he is... His, uh, his uh, commitment to his own personal brand is... is it's, it's so absolutely... It, it's, yeah. But it, it's, it goes... It, it, it outlasts the point at which it's even a valuable brand. Mm-hmm. Which implies that it is actually him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's um, that's the sweet spot when you can't tell the the gap between brand and persona, personality. <laughs> that's uh, what all these YouTube stars are shooting for. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. One of one of the things, yeah, one of the things I always, yeah, I will harp on about, as you mentioned right at the start with um, our our friend Ben. Um, it's almost unavoidable when I get into a conversation about Costner. <laughs> but I won't challenge people to to find a you know an actor who's had a, a better ten year spell mm. um, than Kevin Costner between eighty five and ninety five. Um, you know, not in the sense of we talk about you know, De Niro and Pacino, but the sheer like number of films and just how goddamn enjoyable they are. Mm. Like it's it's really hard for me to look at you know go on IMDb and look at ten year spells, and find similar achievements. I think it's it's something that stands out to me. Yeah, it's something that um, is often applied. I often hear people talk about like the five album test mm. in 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 music, which is like find a band who had a run of five great albums in a row and like you know like most recently this came because I think of uh, Spoon's most recent album. Like people talking about them as a band who could be like a 10 album band because literally it's just like every couple of years they put out an album and it's always just like really solid and good yeah and like i think in the case of like movie stars it's very rare to find someone who has that just a consistency which is not necessarily like they're doing amazing work every time but Mm. like you could just you could just pick any of those movies from that period and you will find uh something good and you'll you'll find people who will be just kind of advocates for yeah. those movies yeah yeah and it's not um yeah it's not uh, i think it's not necessarily a comment that he's necessarily something special it's it's more an interesting observation on how the movie industry works mm. but it's so difficult to actually have a consistent string of good outputs yeah <laughs> it would yeah. appear and, and and like to what extent is that just that they pick good projects or that for whatever reason, they were just so hot at that point that only good projects kind of came across their desk. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's kind of it is like a fascinating thing historically to try and pick out why exactly these these runs happen uh, yeah. and how they manage to sustain. Um, and okay, then it's so, interesting to see how they fall apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is in some ways the the wreckage is kind of almost more fascinating to kind of pour through <laughs> than the than the building itself. Certainly is for the Simpsons. Oh yeah, God yeah. Oh, there's there's a there's a podcast post post. Oh no, I was going to say post classic Simpsons podcast, but there literally is a podcast called Worst Episode Ever, which is is, is just that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, that's a fun show. It's very silly, but it's a, it's a fun show. Uh, okay, so to end this, uh, I think we just kind of recommend a Costner movie that uh, we haven't mentioned yet. Um, I'll go first. I'll recommend. Uh, 13 Days, which I don't think we talked about much here, which is the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which mm. in which he plays. is He's kind of the main star, although it's a film with a fairly big ensemble cast. It falls into a 
genre movie that I like quite a lot, which is a kind of a, a very cerebral historical drama. Uh, you know, it's about the um, maneuvering that took place within the kind of the corridors of power during the Cuban Missile Crisis to avert the end of the world uh, and the kind of the clear-headed and uh, effort that it took from everyone involved to try yeah. and figure out a way out of this seemingly impossible situation. Uh, and it's a hugely enjoyable version of that because you have all of these really good actors kind of really digging into the, these great figures from history mm. and uh, just being delivered with a real sense of of urgency. Like, even though, like, you know, we know how the movie ends because <laughs> we're not all dead, because <laughs> we're all alive to watch it. We know that, you know, the world didn't end in complete thermonuclear war. Uh, it still has tension because the... The question of the movie is, okay, how did we avoid this, the end yeah. of the world? Uh, and I think that Costner does a really good job of providing something of a centre for what could be, in the wrong hands, just this complete morass and this complete mess of conflicted, <laughs> conflicting uh, conflicts and, and interests going on. He's clear-eyed. Yes. If you would say. Yeah. We, well, I've, I've kind of spewed out most of my <laughs> uh, favourite costs. <laughs> I think the most curious film of the bunch and one of my enduring favourites is Bull Durham, but because mm. we haven't mentioned it, I would strongly defend The Bodyguard as well. Yeah, as, yeah. As a film that, despite everything on paper, looking at it now, is like the perfect example of someone first coming across that going, it's got Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner in, <laughs> um, and you're telling me it's good. Mm. And yet somehow, the kind of, the just... As you say, the, the performance of Costner kind of just drives the whole movie forward. And he's just, a, it's like a, there's some great action set pieces in it. Um, there's, you know, the, the love story, as bizarre as it is, is actually believable. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, it's just a, a really stand-up piece of work. And in a completely, um, in an amazingly unfashionable way. Like now, looking back, you you wouldn't expect that movie to be good, but rewatching it, I actually quite enjoy it. Um, it's also interesting falling in that run of movies he was making in the late eighties and early nineties. There's that sense. Uh, it, it's you know kind of one of the examples of where not only was he in a movie that was really successful, he was in a movie that really permeated the culture in a major mm. way like there was like if you talk about jfk like everyone remembers back and to the left back and to the left back <laughs> and to the left and you know and it was parodied on seinfeld in like a hugely popular episode or field of dreams like everyone knows build yeah. it if you build it they will come it's like there were these movies that he happened to be in that became that were like genuinely iconic and which mm. are touchstones for a culture and the bodyguard partly through its soundtrack which i believe is still the highest selling <laughs> movie yeah. soundtrack of all time you know, it, it is a movie that has kind of really re-echoed through the ages as a movie for that particular generation. It really is kind of a touchstone movie. Yeah, the scene of uh, the scene of running across the stage to take a bullet mm. has a certain yeah. As more people will have seen the you know the satires of it, yeah, than will have seen the actual film, mm -hmm. and won't know that the film is actually a relatively like straightforward but quite hard boiled. Um, kind of crime drama really mm. um, it's quite an interesting film yeah in that respect it's kind of like similar to the original Rocky which you know pioneering yeah. the idea of a training montage it's like yeah. it's something that is now 
so part of the grammar of filmmaking that it's hard to believe that it originated with an actual movie. Yeah. yeah. And that was also his... Is that, was that Sylvester Stallone's first directorial debut? Uh, he didn't direct it. It was directed by know? John G. Alverton, but he um, wrote it. It was his first... Produced screenplay, yeah, and like his first real kind of leading role, like after years of being just kind of a hired goon in movies and things. Like he he was like a huge. He became he forced himself to become a huge star, basically, yeah. which is uh, kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, so yeah, the bodyguard is is worth going beyond the soundtrack and <laughs> the satire, and actually just enjoying a bit of classic 90s uh, procedural de- like detective crime thriller mm. another genre that doesn't really exist anymore no not no. in movies anyway it's like there are certain genres which used to be everywhere which have now just migrated so to television TV. yeah bring back the bone collector <laughs> hashtag bring back the yeah. bone collector uh, okay thank you very much jack for coming on the show thanks um, for having me uh, if you have enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Also, please leave us a review. It's the best way to help people find the show. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>